we have spent the past two years creating a series of episodes for our passion project. Now, we've tried everything we could think of to get some kind of financial support before we launched. And nothing has worked. So here we are. We've got eight episodes ready of what will be the first season of our series called The Remarkable Ones. And now it's time to launch. It's time to start putting the episodes out there and to see what kind of noise we can make. We've got these eight episodes, which are going to roll out over the next four months. And that's our runway to try and attract enough financial support that season two becomes possible. In other words, we're jumping off a cliff and we're trying to build the plane on the way down. This is Chasing Remarkable, and it follows the journey of a small studio trying to bring their passion project to the world in a way that's sustainable. In the last episode, we outlined our biggest objective for season one of The Remarkable Ones, viewership. We would consider 100,000 views per episode a positive start that would take closer to a million views per episode for it really to be considered a success. But viewership is just a milestone on the long journey ahead. Viewership by itself isn't going to fund and sustain a series. It's simply bargaining power to get the series in front of the right people and to reach our next big goal, sponsorship. Failing to get sponsors on board who align with our values and what we're doing could very well mean failing to continue this series. And sponsorship is so important that for this episode of Chasing Remarkable, I brought in an expert. Someone who's generated over a million dollars in sponsor-driven projects. Someone who, if you watch The Remarkable Ones, you've already met. The name of the series is The Remarkable Ones, right? So even there, if you're a part of it, you're basically accepting the fact that you are remarkable in some way. So for me, I felt remarkable in the fact that I did this I Wear Your Shirt thing. I've done these crazy ideas, selling my last name, sponsored book, now my future, you know, all this stuff. Yeah, that is remarkable. Not a lot of people can do that. I do believe that. But when you compare me to a paraplegic man who, you know, like is doing the things that he's doing, I'm like, I'm not remarkable. I'm worthless. Now, obviously, modesty isn't Jason Zook's only strong suit. In this episode, you'll hear what this entrepreneur and featured character in The Remarkable Ones had to say when I called him to talk about all things sponsorship. Now, here's just a couple of the things we're going to cover today. The specific actions that Jason took to grow interest and find potential sponsors for his most successful projects. We discussed how you should split your time and resources in terms of investing in creating something versus investing in promoting it. We dove into the idea of a value proposition, what it is, and Jason's thought on how we could build that for our own series. And we also talked about an out-of-the-box strategy to get your story in front of the people who need to see it. But before we dive into these topics and my conversation with Jason, I want to take a step back and share a progress update for where we currently are in our efforts with The Remarkable Ones. So we've just launched episode four on Shane Hurlbut ASC. Now, to recap, that means in the past two weeks, we've released two new episodes, Jason Zook and Shane Hurlbut. It's been fun to get those stories out there, but things are certainly moving slowly. Getting visitors to the website is tough. We have just under 20,000 people that we email as part of the Muse community, yet we're only getting just a few of those people to the site. I mean, 20,000 can sound like a lot, but if you look at the report from our email we sent about Jason's episode, only 26% of people open the email. So that's about 5,000 people actually saw what we wrote. And then under 2% actually clicked the link and therefore went to the site, which means less than 400 people actually made it to the episode. 
Yet, at the same time, the trailers for both Jason and Shane have over 10,000 views on Facebook alone in just a couple days. So we're still learning the best way to engage people in the stories and also engage them in the larger series so that they might share it with their friends and come back for another story. Looking at the analytics, it really reminds me of the Gary Vee quote, content is king, but context is God. When you dive into that idea a bit more, what he meant was that you really need to respect the platform and the audience, you know, where people are at, when it is that you're trying to reach out to them. And what our data suggests is that those in the Muse community just aren't in a place on a Tuesday morning at 8 a.m. that they want to follow a link in an email to an inspirational 10-minute story. Yet, folks are ready to engage on Facebook right away. So, thus far, we're far short of our 100,000 views per episode, but it's also really early. We're sending lots of emails to media companies and even more follow-ups. We have a lot of people who want to support the series, but it's far harder to get people who will actually support it financially. So we've gotten a bunch of no's thus far, and a few maybes. We've also had somebody reach out and ask about joining in the field for The Remarkable Ones, and that's a $3,000 workshop seat which helps to support the series. And we've got another creative director from a media company who asked for a call. Grant, him and I had a 90-minute call on Sunday and brainstormed all kinds of great ideas of how we could build this series. So we're definitely seeing some early sparkles in the distance, but we've got a lot more work to do to keep getting these stories in front of people and getting them connected to the series. If you don't know who I am, my name is JasonHeadsets.com, formerly Jason Sadler. I'm the guy who's been getting paid to wear t-shirts for the past five years on IWearYourShirt.com. You may also know me as the guy who sold his last name to the highest bidder in 2012, which is why my last name is Headsets.com. Now, as we mentioned in the last podcast, we often get the question, how do you find these remarkable people? For Jason Zook, I'd heard about his work when looking online for some marketing resources. I stumbled upon an article on how he had created I Wear Your Shirt and knew this was someone worth reaching out to. I didn't know anyone who knew him, and all I did was send an email sharing why I connected with his story, a little bit about who we are and why I thought it needed to be shared, why his story needed to be told, and we wanted to be the ones to do it. So often I share my side of being behind the scenes of an episode, but very little do I get to hear what the experience was like for the character or ask him what made him or her say yes. And so with Jason, I got the opportunity to do just that. You know, when people do a little bit of research, when they go just like one step further than just sending the message through the contact form, I, I'm, I'm already interested. I'm already like, okay, great. You know, I, tell, I can tell these people care. I can tell that there's genuine interest here and not just oh, this guy is someone on the internet who's done something that people have heard of. Let's see if we can use him to try and you know get our audience to pay attention, right? And I think that that's what I've learned in just a, a lot of this kind of world of, of interviews and all these other things that, that go on is a lot of people are just using other people for their stories instead of saying like, hey, no, we want everything to benefit each other. Like there's a give and a take here. And I think that's what really came across in your email that by the end of it, I was... I was ready to reply, you know, and, and I you know, also put some personality into it. I could tell it wasn't copy and pasted, which you can really tell in a lot of different emails um, that come across for people. So, yeah, it's it's effort, right? Like it, I think a lot of what we're probably going to talk about comes back to effort. But um, it's just that little extra bit that, that most people won't do. And when it came time to sit down for the actual interview, Jason shared what he remembered from that experience. I think I immediately had the reaction of like, uh, first of all, I'm not remarkable. I shouldn't be on this. You're talking to way better people with way more interesting stories. And, you know, then I came to realize like, well, yeah, but 
this story is kind of crazy and it is, you know, something that can inspire people and has inspired people for years in just a different way. And what's really interesting is that if you think about it, it's like, especially when you're in it, you're like, well, being in it and in the trenches of whatever it is that you're doing, that doesn't feel remarkable. But you know what? When I get to the finish line of whatever I'm trying to do, that's going to feel remarkable. And guess what? First of all, there's probably never a real finish line, right? Because when you get to one, there's another and everything else. But I really feel like now looking back, and I think that's for everything, you look back and you have a whole different perspective on how everything looks. My friend Paul Jarvis has this saying, like, you can't see the label from inside the jar. So it's so true. Like You can't read that label when you're in the jar and you're like, I can't see around it. I can't get out of this jar. What am I doing? I just think it's really important for anybody listening to this and anything that you're doing is to just believe that you're doing it for, you know, the reason that you set out to do it, like have that be the thing you come back to at all times. Like, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? And for me, it's really funny. I think the way that all of this worked out, us getting connected, you guys creating this amazing story that I get to have forever and other people get to see. But when I first started I Wear Your Shirt, the entire impetus was, I want to tell businesses stories in a human, real way. That's all I wanted to do. I just wanted to give them another chance to have their stories heard because there are so many great businesses out there that actually are doing cool things, making great stuff, giving back to communities, society, the world, and that they're just not being heard. And I just thought that I could do that for some stupid, naive reason. I don't know why, but I, I just, I had the courage to do it and and I did it. And I think that for anybody, it's just realizing those things like, it, and you guys know this so well, but it really does come back to story and, and all that stuff. It's such an important thing that we all grasp a hold of. Now, in listening to Jason's story, you'll find that he has a lot to be proud of. He's transformed a handful of his most wacky ideas into successful business ventures that not only provide value for others, but they're also personally fulfilling and earn him a living. 27-year-old Jason Sadler of Jacksonville, Florida, isn't getting dressed for work. Getting dressed is his work. In his first venture, I Wear Your Shirt, companies would pay Jason to wear a t-shirt with their logo printed on it, and he'd post videos and pictures all over social media. Now, it's one thing to have a creative idea, but it's an entirely other thing to have the courage to go after that idea. And it's a whole other playing field to actually gather the interest and the funding to sustain that idea. Jason told me about the experience of launching I Wear Your Shirt and how he was able to grow a following to make it a financially viable enterprise. The first thing I did was I just turned on the website and I expected money to like funnel into my bank account. And that did not happen. And that does not happen. Um, you know, it's like, I like to think of it now, like building a hotel in the middle of the desert and just never telling anybody the hotel's there. Like, how do you ever expect to get a single guest? You have to, you have to promote, you have to tell people. And there's a real interesting correlation that I've seen for myself and for lots of, I mean, thousands of people that I've interacted with over the years that are business owners that we're willing to spend so much time creating the thing, whether that's your video series, whether that's your business, whether that's your nonprofit, whatever it is, we're willing to spend so many hours in the, in the trenches doing that, putting in the work, the effort, the desire. But then when it comes to promotion, it's almost like all screeching things come to a halt. You know, the record skips, the car slams on the brakes. I mean, everything, and it's, you know, we'll send out like one tweet or one email and then we give up. We're like, oh, no one liked this. And it's a really interesting psychological thing that I've been trying to figure out, you know, is there a system or a process that I've used over the years? And honestly, what it came down to when it first started was 
first of all, accepting the slap in the face of like, wait a second, can't just build this hotel in the desert. I, I need to go tell people about this hotel. I need to go put signs on the road. I need to call all my friends. And really where I start with every project, especially with I Reassure, because that was really my first project, which is going to the people I already have trust with. People that have either, A, already paid me money for something. So at the time I had design clients. So I actually emailed them. And I was like, listen, I, you know, would you be interested in this? And if not, do you know anybody who might be, who just likes kind of wacky, weird ideas? And so I, I just kind of went through my inbox and, and literally just went line by line down and just started replying to people on the last email we had. And just like, here's this crazy idea. What do you think? You know, and nowadays I'm much more crafted at that. Like I have a, a better process. I have a better kind of way of doing that and organizing it. But that really is as simple as it is to get your first sales, to land your, your first deals, is to go to the people you already have trust with, tell them what you're doing, tell them what could be in it for them, and see if you can have a conversation about making that relationship happen. And then just knowing at the at the end of that, you could hear no. And if you don't hear no, you should follow up because that's super important. And that was actually a big thing for me when I first started. I just basically pestered people, but in a friendly way. You know, these are my friends. They were family. They were clients. I'm like, hey, like, did you read my email I sent you a couple days ago? Like, oh, yeah, I got busy. Yeah, guess what? Everyone gets busy. So you have to follow up. And especially nowadays, I mean, we're in just such a ridiculous time of confusion and notifications and all this stuff. Everyone's putting dog ears on everything these days, Patrick. How can anyone read an email? Uh, but that just became really important for me was realizing follow-up emails and, and reaching out to people I already have trust with started to bring in sales and started to get that word of mouth going. Chasing Remarkable is brought to you by Fix and Mix Audio. Sound is half of everything that's seen or felt in your story, yet so many of us still don't take the time to do it right. That's where Fix and Mix comes in. They offer a quick and simple process where you can upload your audio and have it professionally cleaned and mixed all at super affordable rates. Check them out at fixandmixaudio.com. One of our big mistakes early on came during making our first feature-length documentary, Stand With Me. Now, it was the story of a nine-year-old girl who used lemonade to fight child slavery. We'd spent upwards of $250,000 in the better part of a year creating the content, yet only several weeks promoting it. The disparity was massive, as was our financial loss. We thought that if the content was great, people would naturally be drawn to it. But it just doesn't work that way. We just didn't see that kind of return. So with the remarkable ones, we're learning from that mistake. We're dedicating more resources to making trailers, creating social media plans, and reaching out to media partners. But in talking to Jason, it became evident that we still have more to learn. Here he is, the master of marketing himself, breaking down the ideal ratio of creation versus promotion. I mean, I think if we look at the very beginning of I Rear Shirt, it was probably 2% creation and 98% promotion. I mean, that's that's what brand new ideas take. And then what happens, which is really great, is that when you put in that 98% promotion, well, guess what? Like, then you're going to have things you're going to need to create. So you kind of have these two balancing scales that they're way off. And then they start to level out a little bit where it's like, okay, well, now you're creating a bunch of stuff. You've promoted it enough. People are hearing about it. That, you know, there's other people talking about helping you promote it. People are buying, you know, like the scales are coming together. They're even. And then a really cool thing happens. And this is what happened for me with I Rear Shirt is in the second year, the scales completely flipped. I got to a point where I was just in creation mode and I had been putting out so much content and so many great things 
that people were finding them. You know, it had enough time. That's the other thing is time. Like things need time to live and exist and permeate and, and actually break through all that clutter and crap that I talked about. And once that happens, well, then you don't actually have to promote as much because people are finding you, they're hearing about you. And that can take a year, two, three years, which so many people hear that. And again, like record stop, breaks, slam, because people are like, oh, I just want it now. It's There is no now. There's no now in business. Like you can't just flip a switch. You can't just open, like turn something on, send a few emails and you're just swimming in cash. Like that doesn't happen. First of all, swimming in cash is disgusting. Don't do that. But second, like you just have to realize you're in this for more than just the beginning. You're in this for the middle, the third quarter, the fourth quarter, the second year, the third year. And and I think those scales will balance out. I think for me, any project that I do nowadays, you know, fast forwarding 12 years is is a is like a 50-50. You know, it's like the amount of time I put into creating it, I try and spend the equal amount of time promoting it. Because then at least I feel like, hey, I created it with this much time, I promoted it with the exact same fair amount of time, now I should get a result that matters. And I've seen that work over and over again, for me especially, uh, but I've tried to help people also do the same, and it seems to be working. I'm, I'm gathering data and learning from my own processes as I'm doing it. Jason's suggestions make a lot of sense. To get sponsors, you should start by reaching out to the people you've already built trust with. If they're not interested in your idea, ask them if they know anybody else who might be. And just as important, you have to keep following up. But when it comes to the remarkable ones, here's the problem. The people we've built trust with and who are willing to support us are filmmakers. And filmmakers tend to be more interested in the the behind the scenes of how we created an episode rather than the content itself. On the other hand, the kind of audience we want to reach, the conscious consumer or people who are looking for positive content, we don't really know those people yet. We simply don't have those contacts, let alone their trust. So I picked Jason's brain on how he might approach getting sponsorship from entirely new contacts who don't know us and we don't know them. Most of the things I've done have been very personal. Like they're things I control, I do. Um, you know, for you guys, it's a little bit out of your control to like have the, the series be seen by millions of people. You need a lot of things to go right. And you know, what I would do if I was in your position, like I was working on the series is I would say, okay, we have these amazing assets, right? We have this, this amazing creative stuff that we've done what can we do with this? You know, like who can use this? What are, what are brands that, that we can tie into this or what are our resources where there are existing communities of people that they will not want to get this in front of. And, you know, I immediately start to think about things where there's just brands that align with the different stories, you know? So it's like, okay, well maybe there's, there's a, an airline that wants to do something with, you know, the story that has to do with flying. And so you start to think about these concentric circles that go outside of that story, right? So like, what are the things within that story? Okay, hospitals that help people who get rehabilitated. Okay, that's a whole circle of different brands and businesses that might be interested in using this as like an inspirational video for anybody that's being affected by conditions, you know, quadriplegic conditions, or just anything like body related that you have to rehab from. So I'm going to build a list of all the companies I can think of that might have, you know, networks or other things where they could be showing this. And there could be some way to tie in like a sponsorship for using that or like a license for using it. And, you know, imagine the power that that video creates for them. You're not going to benefit uh, the the kind of sharing and the explosion of views and, and, and everyone hearing about this series just through your network. So you have to go where other networks exist and to say, how can I get in front of them And how can I get some dollar signs attached to that that makes sense in some way for both of us? Besides landing over 2,000 sponsors himself, Jason has also created online courses on how to get sponsors for podcasts or sponsors for anything, really. 
And one of the strategies he talks about in his course is called value proposition. Now, a value proposition is just a paragraph or two that clearly explains what it is you're trying to get people to sponsor, as well as the specific benefits that you're offering to the sponsor. And so I asked Jason how he would approach building a value proposition for the remarkable ones if he was in our shoes. Sponsorships can get kind of a negative tinge in people's, you know, feelings. You know, it can make you feel like, oh, like, you know, I don't want that. But I've always looked at it as it can be a compliment to what you're doing, right? Like you can find a brand. And that's what I was talking about when I was talking about those circles of all those brands that can actually fit within the story in some way. You're building this thing, you know, and for you guys, it's this storytelling series, this video series. And and I think the value there for a potential sponsor is you've done the really hard work and you have the experience, the years of experience, decades even of experience to tell a great story and to visually represent that great story in a beautiful way. And, And so that takes a lot of the effort out of somebody who you might pitch this to where you can say, hey, do you wanna leverage this for something that you're doing? Like you already have the built in audience. You're just looking for opportunities to put things in front of them so they can either hear from you or have a reason to buy from you again or any of that stuff. And so I really look at this as like, okay, this this series, The Remarkable Ones, like it is about telling remarkable stories. It is about finding people who you may have never heard of before that have just done just amazing things. And, and a lot of brands, a lot of people, a lot of companies can get behind that. Openness and honesty stood out to us when listening to Jason Zook's story. There was the moment he faced along his journey where from the outside, it looked like he was this successful entrepreneur. He's getting paid to wear other people's t-shirts and he'd successfully escaped the nine to five job. But when he was really honest with himself, he realized that he was miserable. He created what he refers to as a career dungeon around himself. And he eventually came to the point where he had to make a decision. Our time is short, yet so many of us get stuck in doing things that we don't like. And the worst part isn't even wasting the one, five, ten years of your life doing something you don't love. It's also the opportunity cost of what you could have experienced, what you could have created had you just said, I'm out. I'm going to find something else. What I've done over the years is to really reframe my thinking for these big, hard tasks, because it's a hard task ahead of you. I mean, just the things I've talked about today, like they take a lot of time and you know that. And it's to reframe the thinking of, God, this feels like an obstacle to get money. It feels like an obstacle to get in front of it. It's like reframe that obstacle to opportunity. Hey, this actually feels like a really cool opportunity that we have this amazing content. Who can we get this in front of? And that little mental shift for me, and I know it sounds kind of silly, but those mindset things are really powerful, is to nothing is an obstacle anymore. Everything is an opportunity. Even when something goes wrong, even when something just like completely breaks down or, you know, you you send an email at the wrong time, whatever, it's an opportunity to make it better. It's an opportunity for you to give value where you weren't giving value and you have to now kind of clean that up. And, And I think for you guys, like it's just, there's so much opportunity with this series is to just constantly be thinking the only route for this is not sponsors. The only route for this is not distribution. There are other creative routes. We just have to go and find them. And we have to be willing to be open to those to come to us as well by having more conversations, by talking to people, by sharing, by being, you know, putting this thing out there. And that for me, I think is, is another reason why I take on so many projects because I just love all of the little opportunities that come along the way for everything else that I never saw coming. This is not your practice life.
Chasing Remarkable is brought to you by SoundsRight Transcription. We use their services to ensure that we pull the absolute best quotes from every interview we conduct. SoundsRight Transcription allows us to quickly review interviews as a team, even when some of us are working remotely. We can highlight the most impactful moments and easily organize them into a script for whatever piece we're working on, whether it be for video or even this podcast. And did I mention that each transcription is time-coded? As an editor for Muse, I can't overemphasize how much time this has saved me. Check them out at srtranscription.com. Next, Shane Hurlbut, ASC, who found his passion early and has followed it with full force. Grabbing a light, flipping switches on, and raising it up to the sky could easily be done with me standing near the camera, going on a walkie-talkie, and talking to an individual to be able to do that. That's not how I learned. Shane has been the director of photography on over 20 Hollywood features, films we've all seen in theaters, films like Need for Speed or Act of Valor, with budgets ranging from two to $200 million, and crews upwards of 200 people. But those numbers and stats aren't what makes Shane remarkable to us. What really drew us to Shane was his passion for his craft and his relentless pursuit of something more. His will and work ethic are truly something special. Most of my crew calls it Superman status. And I was always a hustler. Um, anytime they asked me to do anything, I did it much faster than everyone else. Uh, I was always running around, and everyone's like, dude, you got to slow down, man. You're making everyone else look bad. I'm like, I don't have a problem with that. And they're like, yeah, but that's not how it works. Like I said, I really don't have a problem with that. Not only does he work harder than most people, but what you may not realize about Shane is how completely committed he is to his relationships, both personally and professionally. Now, it's said that we are the average of the five people we spend the most time with. That's a really powerful idea. And for Shane, he's fought incredibly hard for those that he surrounds himself with. Loyalty and friends and commitment matters. You know, I'll take something, whether it's a commercial, whether it's a small, short film uh, that I'm doing a favor for a friend, and then I'll get a massive uh, feature deal. But I've committed to this person, and so I push the feature away to be able to do the commitment. I've always been that way. I have to say that I'm so much a Hollywood outsider. Uh, I don't do the parties. Now, that's probably definitely affected where I've gone in my career. Not schmoozing, not playing the game, not always making the calls. But I kind of feel that I would much rather be in my shoes where I am with my heart and caring and family and a successful relationship with uh, my wife, Lydia, of 28 years. I mean, this is something that doesn't happen in our movie business. You know, she basically funded uh, my dream for over three years. Uh, her working very long hours, double shifts, everything possible, so I could work my way up the ladder. And this leads us to the big theme in Shane's episode of The Remarkable Ones, excellence. 
So much of Shane's story is about striving to be the best and how that requires you to surround yourself with the right people. It's really a culmination of both that have helped him to go from farm boy to making $3 an hour in an LA grip house to the trailblazing Hollywood cinematographer that he is today. And while it didn't make the cut in the final episode, I wanted to share with you a story that Shane shared with me about his first big break, becoming the director of photography for the 1980 HBO feature, The Rat Pack. I had to meet all the HBO executives and creatives that were behind that project. And I remember going down to uh, Century City and going up into the big silver tower and it was like the 15th floor, I walk off, I go, I thought I was meeting two people and there's a room of six. I sit down and they just start firing questions at me. I made that determination right then and there to just basically give them two ways to go, not to consider anything else. I told them that if they selected me to be the director of photography, I would bring all my commercial contacts, all the loyalty, all the relationships, because this is my big break. And I'm going to lean on these people that I've been incredibly loyal to for the years to just give me everything they got. And I will give you 180%. This will not be a cameraman phoning in this project or a cameraman that comes in and is passionate, and this is awesome, but I'm going to give more. Or you can decide not to hire me. My daughter is in my wife's belly, and I will go back to the commercial and music videos that I'm shooting and be able to enjoy my daughter's birth and the whole amazing celebration of, that, of her life. And I said, I leave it to you. And uh, I walked out the door. I went down to the elevator. Uh, one person came and stopped me and said, you had a great interview. Thank you so much for being honest. And I said, hi, hey guys, I'm, I know I have the experience I know I might be green and, and not have all the narrative work, but my passion will completely outweigh all of that. And they decided to go with me. There is a lot we can all learn from both Jason and Shane's story. If you haven't seen the full episodes, I hope you'll make time this weekend to check them out and really consider the ideas that they share. What you'll start noticing about all of these people we feature in The Remarkable Ones is, is that while they are all truly remarkable, it's often just a way of thinking or an approach that they have that many of us don't. They don't have superpowers. They do have an incredibly powerful perspective. And I hope with each new story, there is something there that really adds to how you see the world. With that, I'm going to wrap up by asking all of you to help us keep this podcast and the series alive. Pick one episode and share it with people with your real thoughts. That's the number one way that we can connect people in a real way to these stories. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support. This episode of Chasing Remarkable is brought to you by Rode Microphones. As a small production team aiming for big results, 
We use Rode boom poles, the NTG4 Plus shotgun, and on-camera audio to bring each episode of The Remarkable Ones to life. Rode helps us get powerful sound for our series. We're even using their podcaster microphone right now. Nice. This Chasing Remarkable podcast was brought to you by the team at Muse Storytelling. Our host, Patrick Moreau, produced by Susie Alarcon, edited by Richard Percy, with story development by Catherine Giroux, with special thanks to our guest, Jason Zook. If you'd like to hear Patrick's full conversation with Jason Zook, tune in next week to episode 2.5 of Chasing Remarkable.